This episode of Arizona Spotlight is supported by the City of Bisbee. For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up. How a solo grad student in Sonora is crunching the numbers related to the pandemic and making them available to everyone. Live Theater Workshop's new production, Body Awareness, is weaving together some interesting new themes. I'll talk with the director and one of the lead actors about the play. The UA Graduate Student Film Showcase, I Dream in Widescreen, is at the Fox Tucson Theater this Saturday. Film essayist Christy Scheel offers some recommendations and meet singer and guitarist Wiley Ray. For 15 years, Ray and his Big O Band have been celebrating the legacy of rock pioneer Roy Orbison. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. If you want to know what's going on with the coronavirus pandemic in neighboring Sonora, Arguably, the best source isn't the state government or a news outlet. It's a single graduate student with a passion for turning big data into solid information. From Fronteras, Murphy Woodhouse brings us the story of this time-intensive volunteer effort. On a recent afternoon, Luis Armando Moreno pulls a computer, mouse, and ventilated stand out of his backpack. For more than two years, these have been his tools in a long campaign to keep his fellow Sonorans informed about a pandemic that has claimed well over 10,000 lives here and disrupted everyday life. Clean-cut and well-dressed in the otherwise empty University of Sonora Mathematics Lab, he runs a computer script to download and crunch the latest federal COVID-19 database, now some 15 million rows long. With the help of R, a powerful computer programming language, in less than 20 minutes, his website is updated with a number of slick charts that paint a clear picture of the state of the pandemic, like a color-coded city-level map. But this streamlined, largely automated process is a far cry from how the project began. In mid-March 2020, the first case of COVID-19 was confirmed in Sonora. La salud de nuestras familias. Less than two weeks later, then-Governor Claudia Pavlovich declared a health emergency and ordered many businesses to close. Across the country, Mexicans were asked to stay home for all but a handful of essential activities. Digging through old files on his computer, he pulls up the very first graphic he made on the exact day the first case was confirmed. It shows where Hermosillo's older residents, among the most vulnerable to the disease, were concentrated. He built it with Excel and other software tools, things he used in his day job at the state auditor's office. He couldn't have known it then, but so began what would be countless after and before work hours of effort over the next two years. It was an attempt to respond to a lack of clear, accessible information and to the anxiety he, his family, friends, and co-workers shared. It was this project that also led him to apply to the university's new data science master's program later that spring. As he learned new tools and techniques, he incorporated them into the COVID project, steadily increasing its sophistication and cutting from hours to minutes the time it took each day. 
Bueno, eh, la primera, la noticia de hoy, bueno, sí. se llegaron a, a 100.000 casos. The project profile also grew, and Moreno became a regular source of pandemic information and analysis for Sonoran news outlets and KJZZ, something he initially resisted, but eventually embraced. Muy bien, este, hola, muchas gracias por su asistencia a todos. With the end of the inaugural master's program fast approaching, data science students recently gathered to share the latest on their final projects. Julio Weisman is the program's coordinator. Y, y honestamente también era mejor que... For a time, Weisman and others with the program maintained their own COVID tracking project, but he readily, proudly concedes that Moreno's is the best in the state. Yo creo que siempre son o de iniciativas ciudadanas o de... He says the best data presentations are often citizen-led initiatives because public bodies can have hierarchies that make flexibility difficult. Political considerations can also complicate things. Because the work was all based on public data, he says anyone could do what Moreno has done. But you need to know how to find what he describes as the nuggets of gold in a sea of numbers. Hey, yo lo estoy pensando con el proyecto final. With cases on the decline in Sonora for weeks now, Moreno is considering his final master's presentation, the symbolic end of his project, barring a major new wave. Contribuirá a, a, a proveer información, este, pues, digamos, oportuna. He hopes it's provided the public with timely information for making decisions and filled in gaps in other sources. He's regularly heard from people who say his work led them to change plans, skipping a party, delaying an event. But it also stands as a clear accounting of what happened during the pandemic in Sonora, a public refusal to forget the scale of the tragedy, a rebuke to those who dismiss the coronavirus as little more than a cold. Pointing to a dense display of dots in one of his graphics, each representing one of several hundred thousand confirmed deaths in Mexico, he says the gravity is easy to see here at least, in this record of irrevocable harm, of two hard years endured. I'm Murphy Woodhouse in Hermosillo. Body Awareness is the name of the current production at the Live Theater Workshop in Tucson. It was written by Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Annie Baker, and it tells the story of Phyllis and Joyce, a mature queer couple who are facing challenges and differences of opinion on many contemporary matters, including their young adult son's Asperger syndrome, and choices about their own bodies and how to display them that require them to dig deep into their feelings. Here to tell us more is the play's director, Sam Rush, and actor Rhonda Holquist from Live Theater Workshop. The chance to direct an Annie Baker play, uh, I would say any director worth anything is going to do it in a heartbeat because she's such a wonderful playwright. Annie Baker is somebody who really developed a passion for cultivating the spaces between the words more than the words. She's somebody that with each subsequent play builds in, you would say, longer and longer pauses. People in theater like to think of like Pinter, like Harold Pinter, and, and there's the Pinter pause, you know, this where you sort of like are waiting longer than you think that people in the theater usually wait. And Annie Baker, and in this play, she says, I encourage you to really take these pauses to the point where the audience starts to get a little uncomfortable um, because it's in those moments where the true gold happens. Um, and so for me, the opportunity to direct this play was just to really explore it and explore it with uh, really good actors. And we have an amazing cast. So I, I have just the best of both worlds, a great play and a great cast to really explore this. <laughs> 
Rhonda, I guess that puts you in the spotlight now. So thank you, Sam. Share your reflection on uh, first reading this play and uh, what you thought as an artist it was saying. I usually get to page 10 in a play where I decide whether I want to finish reading it or not. This was about page one. <laughs> um, it's brilliantly constructed. Um, the characters each go through a growth that's profound. Um, and the comedy, <laughs> the comedy when it comes is, is platinum. I was going to say gold, <laughs> but Sam already said gold. Okay. And it's earned. The comedy is earned. And it's not trying to be funny. It's just, you can hear these words coming out of someone's mouth. The naturalism of it is just exciting. To be able to, to be one of these characters is just really exciting. Well, then tell the audience about your character. Who are you? I play Phyllis, and she is a community college professor. Um, she has organized uh, with other people at the school uh, Body Awareness Week. They've welcomed guest artists to come, and there are discussions and roundtable panels. But very quickly, she discovers that her idea of what Body Awareness Week should be kind of gets a little bit derailed, along with her idea of what self-image means um, at home and at work, inside and outside. And what kind of home life does she have? Tell us about your partner. Uh, her partner is Joyce. Joyce has a 21-year-old son who may or may not have Asperger's. So that's one of the mysteries running through the play. Um, his name is Jared. He doesn't think he does. And that part of the writing about self-image, too, is, is really profound. How does he see himself? How do other people see him? And the, the struggle to define who he is is the same as everybody else's struggle. It's just there's a label that can be applied um, while other people don't quite get a label. So there's this labeling of people. And expectations as, that go and along with Yes, it. exactly. Body awareness can be a tricky thing for a lot of people, and uh, I wonder if Phyllis is cognizant of that when she decides that this is going to be a great project to bring everyone together. That is a very good question. I think Phyllis thinks everyone ought to be more educated about self-image, and everyone should welcome being more educated about self-image. <laughs> I think that's Phyllis's stance. Okay. Uh, Sam, what would you say about that? I think that what we're discovering is that the notion of what is the definition of, say, someone who has Asperger's, uh, there was this whole time where we were like, you know, is this person on the spectrum? You know, and there are even articles about like, we're all on the spectrum, depending on how you slice it up. And I think Annie Baker is sort of exploring using the question of does Jared have Asperger's or not to ask a bigger question of what do we have that gets in the way of us being present or communicating with each other or having honest feelings. And when you're dealing with a family like this is, I think the audience hopefully will see themselves not only in Jared, but you know, obviously in some of the other characters as well. Rhonda, when we talk about Phyllis and her partner, how, how long of a relationship have they been in together? And how did you and your co-star 
go about getting comfortable with each other and being able to display a, basically a very mature and intimate relationship on stage. Phyllis and Joyce have been together for three years, and Joanne Robertson plays Joyce. She's a very, she brings such a gentleness to Joyce. She's really a dear, dear lady. Uh, we had brunch. I emailed her and <laughs> Always said... Always a good way to start building a relationship. <laughs> yeah. I emailed her and said, can we meet before we start rehearsals? Because it's been a very long time since I've been in, e- in a play where there's any intimacy at all. And even then it was with a very dear friend. Um, so we went out and we had a wonderful discussion about the play and got to know each other a little bit. Not a lot of people get that luxury either. So I felt lucky. We had time to do it and were able to do it. Keith Wick plays Frank, and Frank is the photographer who shows up and in some ways is the real catalyst. He really shakes things up. He develops a very instant kind of unique rapport with Jared. He and Phyllis are at instant odds just because he's a photographer that takes pictures of, you know, naked women and Phyllis feels like that's a little too much male gaze. But at the same time, he comes at a good time when Joyce is also struggling with a sense of her own identity and her own sense of body awareness. The potential for, say, posing for for Frank becomes a almost healing act. Baker writes characters that are neither wholly good or wholly bad. She writes very human characters. We are all full of wonderful things and things that we're maybe not so proud of. Um, But that's what makes for a great piece of theater. My guests were director Sam Rush and actor Rhonda Hallquist. Playwright Annie Baker's Body Awareness runs through June 4th on the main stage at Live Theater Workshop. Next, I welcome the return of film essayist Chris DeShiel to take a closer look at some short films debuting this weekend that each provide a glimpse into the future of filmmaking. I Dream in Widescreen is an annual presentation of senior thesis films from students at the University of Arizona School of Theater, Film, and Television. It's happening at the historic Fox Theater on May 7th at 7 p.m. There will be awards, which is fun, But more importantly, it's a showcase of new talent where we get to see young filmmakers spread their cinematic wings in public for the first time. The show features 12 short movies, averaging 10 minutes each. Now, the short form may take less time than a feature-length film, but that doesn't mean it's easy. Reaching an audience in 10 minutes is a delicate business, and it takes some confidence and courage to pull it off. All of the films are worth our time. I will mention three of them that stand out for me, just to whet your appetite. I can't help but be impressed by the professionalism of Zoe Lambert's documentary about the U of A women's basketball team's past season called Changing of the Guard. The 2020-21 Wildcats, led by their amazing star, Ari McDonald, made it all the way to the championship game, losing in a squeaker to Stanford. So, in the 2021-22 season, with McDonald gone to the WNBA, Players talk about maintaining their standard of excellence. Interviews and voiceover from Sam Thomas and other players are accompanied by footage from team practices and games, while they share their thoughts about the challenges of the upcoming season, along with their admiration for each other and the coaching staff, especially head coach Adia Barnes. Lambert's film conveys the essential information in a short running time. That's how you do it. Nine-teen, spelled with the number nine in the word teen, 
is an affecting personal documentary by Desiree Bure. It's about a young Tucson rapper, Dakota Dylan Wester, whose name as a rap artist was Dax. He died from an overdose of fentanyl and a pill he was told was a Xanax. I admire the way Beret centers the film on Dakota's mother, brother, and friends, who talk about their love for him and how special he was, along with a lot of photos and clips from home movies. There's no judgmentalism. The main point is the appreciation of a young man's life, while along the way the risk posed by fentanyl is acknowledged. A fine, sensitive tribute. In my opinion, fiction shorts are more difficult to do well than nonfiction, simply because it's harder to create a story with enough style to make its mark in such a limited running time. A Man's Man by Jacob Robinson can veer at times towards being too glib, but it's ambitious enough to make an impact. It's the story of a very depressed young man who attempts suicide and his brother who desperately wants to save him from himself. There's good acting from the leads, with an ending that is funny and touching, and the story smartly depicts how supposedly masculine ways of communication can end up preventing guys from asking for help. I got a lot of pleasure from seeing new film artists showing what they can do, and audiences for I Dream in Widescreen will, I think, enjoy it too. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Chris Shiel. I Dream in Widescreen begins at 7 p.m. on Saturday, May 7th, downtown at the Fox Tucson Theater. In the bygone days long before digital music downloads, it was possible to tune in to a far distant radio station sometime after dark and hear the plaintive cry of a unique voice that might never be forgotten. No doubt the lonesome but hopeful sound of Roy Orbison reached many a music lover's ears in just that way. Starting in the 1950s, Orbison crafted a unique place in the history of rock and roll as a shy troubadour who packed an unexpected punch. Orbison was even launching a whole new phase of his career when he died of a heart attack in 1988. Native Californian Wiley Ray has long been entranced by the music of Orbison, so much so that he and his Big O band have been celebrating Orbison's musical legacy for the last 15 years. They'll be playing in Tucson on May 14th at the Fox Tucson Theater, which gave me a chance to find out how Wiley Ray sees the world while looking through his own pair of black sunglasses. I didn't actually plan it. Uh, I was singing in some karaoke bars, and uh, the karaoke host said that I sounded like Roy. Really? And so uh, he encouraged me to, to sing with him. I knew about Roy, uh, but it never occurred to me that I sounded like him. That, that did not occur to me. Uh, some other musicians wanted me to play with them, and one thing led to another. And before you know it, I had a Roy Orbison band. We started playing in uh, some theaters that we could fly. We liked to play in Art Deco theaters. There was a big uh, expansion of uh, theaters from 1925 to 1935 or so. And uh, the acoustics were wonderful. And they're kind of fun just to go into anyway. And so we started playing around in California in, in these theaters. And uh, we've been to Arizona a couple of times. Being in a movie palace would very much fit the mood of Roy Orbison's songs, some of his greatest songs, because there's a sense of kind of longing in them. There's a romanticism in a lot of his hits that in the 50s and 60s, that was being played on the same stations that were playing rock and roll. Well, Roy is a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but he's a unique member. Roy fans know not only his music, but they know his lyrics 
when you listen to Roy's music after an hour and a half, you've been on a real trip. You've gone back in time. His songs are little psychodramas that play out in the music. In 1963, that was a big year for Roy. And he had some songs that, like you're saying, just took you on these journeys of the heart that were really stood out in the crowd. What's, what's a song that is special to you that you always enjoy playing with the band? The song that I think is the most beautiful is called In Dreams. And it's a song that Roy wrote and performed where he describes what he was wishing for and what he hoped for. It's a beautiful song that has a positive feel to it. And everybody goes through periods of uh, depression or has ups and downs. But Roy always emphasized the, the positive hope uh, that tomorrow will be a better day. That's what he was all about. Wiley, tell me about singing in Roy's range. How does hitting those high notes feel to you now after you've been doing it for, you said, 15 years? Good. I'm still good. You know, Roy's voice was as strong as ever over four decades. He passed away at the age of 52, and he had been singing professionally since he was like 19. If I'm healthy, I feel confident after uh, all these years of, of singing his material. As long as I'm healthy, I'm good. Roy famously struggled with uh, stage fright, and that partially led to the way he presented himself on stage. He was known for being pretty still. He didn't move his pelvis like Elvis. We can definitely say that. And we can also say that he's famous for his dark glasses. Uh, What do you know about his stage fright and how that impacted his singing and, and the tremolo in his voice? He was just kind of an awkward man, although he you know, was a decent human being, a good man. And he, he didn't have a real big personality. And no, he stood still basically on stage. And he never said much, you know, and he didn't really have a promoter uh, when he first started out. And they, uh, they wouldn't put his picture on the first albums that he produced because they didn't consider him to be very good looking. Many wore black outfits. He had these thick glasses. One time he was playing in in Alabama, and he, and he left his glasses on the plane, and he had sunglasses with him, so he put those on. So he went on stage with his sunglasses on, and the crowd kind of liked it, and it made him feel more comfortable, I think, on stage. And that's why he was known for wearing sunglasses uh, when he was performing. And today, do you try to emulate the look of Roy Orbison when you're performing? I do. I try to give the audience some visual aspect of this and make it a little more theatrical. I dress like him. I wear a black outfit like him. I have my dark glasses on. I talk like I think he should have talked. I tell stories about his life, and I, and I do it in, in what I think is a humorous way. And, and so there's an aspect to, to my show that he never had, which was you know, engaging with the, with the audience. He never said much of anything that I know of. He had way more tragedy than he deserved. Let's put it that way. His first wife, Claudette, was killed when they were riding on motorcycles coming back to their home in, uh, near Nashville. And he was riding uh, on, on his own motor, on his own bike, very close to hers when it happened. And then two years later, uh, his oldest two boys were killed in a fire at his home when he was in uh, England on tour. That was in the late 60s. So his career kind of declined 
he wasn't able to sell records and, and time kind of passed him by until he was rediscovered by David Lynch, I think his name is the uh, film director in Blue Velvet, a movie that came out in like 1987. And in the soundtrack was the song In Dreams. And that's, that song sort of rekindled his, his uh, career and he had a second phase of his career in the, in the late 80s. Then, of course, he was uh, invited to join the Traveling Wilburys. Yeah, now that's something I definitely wanted to ask you about because there are plenty of people in the audience who remember the Wilburys and who knew some of the big names that made up that group, including Bob Dylan and George Harrison and Tom Petty, but less famous because of that dip in his career over that more than a decade was Roy. And yet, I know as a music fan, at the same time, he was the guy that the other guys were most excited about playing with. Roy was one of the pioneers of rock and roll. He was a member, an ex-officio member of uh, Sam Phillips' class of 55 at Sun Studios in Memphis, along with Elvis and Johnny Cash and Jerry Lee Lewis and Carl Perkins. And so the Beatles were inspired by Roy. And Roy was way more respected by other musicians than you would think, because he never achieved the highest uh, popularity as a pop artist because of his timid nature and his, and his personality, I think. But his music was uh, always respected by other musicians. And so when he joined the Traveling Wilburys, they, the, the other guys uh, welcomed him in as one of the rock pioneers. And then, tragically, they would lose him before they would have an opportunity to record a second album. He was not a strong man. He had childhood illnesses like jaundice. He had heart uh, bypass surgery uh, when he was like 40. And uh, he just physically wasn't destined to live uh, as an old, live out his life as an old man, unfortunately. I feel like there's a whole generation of kids and younger people who missed out on Roy's music, they need to be, I think, given an opportunity to hear this music live. And if they do, I, I know that they will relate to it because the themes of the music and the positive energy in the music is timeless and will never die out as far as I'm concerned as long as it's uh, being performed. Roy was asked how he would like to be remembered. And he said, I just want to be remembered. Wiley Ray and his Big O Band will take the stage at the Fox Tucson Theater on the evening of Saturday, May 14th. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's news director is Christopher Conover. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore. Thank you to the City of Bisbee for their support of Arizona Spotlight.